Amen. You may be seated and go ahead and take out your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Last week we finished up the upper room discourse. We finished the high priestly prayer in John 17. And uh, it was such an amazing time. It was so comforting to my soul that uh, as I, I wrote in the blog post that, that goes out in our newsletter every Friday, um, I'm actually going back through those notes and I'm going to be memorizing John 17. I, I figured all of the theology, all the doctrine that we learned about, uh, specifically last Sunday as we kind of went through 10 points of theology that are clearly in John 17. The whole gospel's there. I mean, you can preach the gospel through John 17. You can be comforted through John 17. You can be encouraged. You can be challenged and convicted. I thought there's just so much there that I want to commit it to memory. So I'm working on John 17. You can ask me uh, anytime you want. Right now I'm just verses 1 through 3, but I'm working through it. Ask me to say it to you, and um, it'll be just good accountability for me. Um, it's rocky right now, but it'll hopefully, Lord willing, start getting a little bit more clear in my mind as I memorize. One of the things that we saw Jesus praying for in John 17 specifically was the protection of his own. He kept praying, Father, keep them. I have kept them. I've protected them. I'm going to die. You need to protect them. You need to keep them. And as we enter into chapter 18, we enter the Garden of Gethsemane. We enter Friday morning of the Passion Week, early in the darkness. And in John chapter 18, we see immediately a picture of how safe we truly are in the Lord's hands. His prayer of protection, we immediately see it being lived out in John 18. Friday morning, early in the darkness, we are going to see our Savior betrayed and arrested. And one of the things that John wants to make abundantly clear this morning, as he already has in this gospel, is that Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not a victim. John wants to show us the glory of Jesus on display in his betrayal and arrest. Remember the purpose for John writing, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. John wants to show us the glory of Jesus, and by staring at glory and letting that point us to true, genuine belief in him as God, we would have life in his name as we follow him. We beheld his glory, the opening chapter tells us, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. We saw it. And we're going to behold his glory together here in these verses. But the question is, how does glory show forth in a betrayal, in an arrest, in an innocent man dying. How is glory evident in these 11 verses? Let's read them together, and then we'll dive in to see three ways in which Jesus is glorious and worthy of our adoration. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met with his disciples there. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. 
And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Father, every passage that we get to, um, it just seems to be holier and holier. We know that's not the case because your word is holy, all of it, every single word, every letter, every story. But we know that we are here on the path towards the crucifixion. We know we are walking just hours away from the murder of the Son of God. And we feel that. God, we we feel that we are on holy ground in these moments as we walk into a moonlit garden. We smell the smells in that garden, an, an olive press. We hear the sounds of clanking swords and armor. We see torches coming nearer. We hear our Savior on his face, unable to stand, crying out to you, if there is another way, let this cup pass. But not my will. Your will be done. God, we're on holy ground in this garden. And I pray as we stare into what looks to be a depressing, despairing a moment where Jesus becomes a victim. God, I pray that we would see glory. Glory in the most difficult, most impossible of places to see glory. Holy Spirit, take our eyes and focus them on glory. That's what you love to do. That's why you wrote these words, so that we would see the glory of Jesus. So show us, open our eyes to see that we'd see Jesus, that we'd see clearly what he is doing in these verses, and that we would see the implication for us today. May this moment in history, 2,000 years ago in a garden, change the way that we live our lives today. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. These words, John tells us, are written so that we may believe. We want to see the glory of Jesus on display, and by seeing that glory, we want to be transformed. But the question is, how is the majesty of Jesus going to shine through in these terrible moments? How are we going to see glory in these moments? And to that end, I ask this question, do you realize that frequently the glory of Jesus is displayed at moments when his weakness seems most obvious? The glory of Jesus is displayed in the Gospels, usually in moments when his weakness seems most obvious. Think about his birth. 
a lowly manger, no room in the inn. He has to sleep in a feeding trough for cattle. And yet at that very moment, a heavenly host sings glory to God in the highest. Think of his baptism, something that was so lowly. John the Baptist said, I don't even want to go through with this. I don't want to baptize you. That's something that you should do for me. And yet at that moment, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus to empower him in his earthly ministry. Think of his exhaustion in the middle of a a, a raging storm. He's asleep in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And in that moment, tired, exhausted, he's awakened by his disciples and calms the storm. Think of his sorrow and grief, weeping at Lazarus' tomb, even asking the question, where is he buried? And weeping over the death of his friend, over sin, over the hardness of heart of those who wouldn't believe, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is the Christian paradox, seeing glory in moments when we seemingly have an, an impossible situation of despair and hopelessness, and yet glory shines through. And here in these verses, we're going to see three characteristics that display the glory of Jesus. Three ways in which the glory of Jesus is clearly seen in this garden. The first is his authority. The second is his protection. And the third is his obedience. Let's start with verses 1 through 6, his authority. His authority. Verse 1, Jesus had spoken these words. These are the high priestly prayer words in the upper room discourse. And he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. We talked about this Kidron Valley. Uh, There was a brook. This brook, Josephus tells us, would have been filled with the blood of all of the animals that had been sacrificed. Jesus steps over the bloody river. Even in those moments, considering that the picture of the sacrifice of these animals is what he's about to fulfill as he goes to the cross. And he enters a garden with his disciples. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. All of the other Gospels will tell us. The Garden of Gethsemane, that word means an olive press. This is a place where uh, olives were grown and pressed out. And Jesus goes there, and Jesus goes to this garden. And we find out that, verse 2, Judas goes there as well. Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas knows where this garden is. But more importantly than that, Jesus knows that Judas knows. So Jesus is going to go to a place where he knows Judas is going to find him. In fact, in the book of Mark, we see this played out. Uh, In the upper room, they would have uh, taken the Passover supper. They would have enjoyed communion together. Um, Judas would have left. He said, I'm leaving. Remember, Jesus turns to him and says, what you have to do, go do it quickly. He goes away. Um, They have communion together, and Judas goes to the high priest to say, I know where he is. I know where we can get him. Let's go back to the upper room. Let's take uh, Jesus prisoner. And as Judas gets the cohort to go back to the upper room, Jesus leaves the upper room and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas goes back to the upper room, knocks on the door, wakes up. uh, For most of our guests, we we think that it's Mark's mom's house where the upper room was, and wakes up Mark, uh, wakes up Mark's mom, says, where is is Jesus? Where has he gone? We don't know. He left a, a couple hours ago. And that's at the very end of Mark 14, we find the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane who had followed the disciples. He's not a disciple, but he had followed the disciples in just a bedsheet. Remember, he, um, a Roman soldier steps on the bedsheet and he flees naked, the Bible says. 
We think that that man is probably Mark, who was in the upper room, who was sleeping when Judas came back from getting the Roman cohort. Judas knows if he's not in the upper room, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knows that Judas knows. So Jesus goes to a place where he will be found out and will be taken captive. A coward would never have gone to this garden. They would have fled. They would never have gone there. They would have hid. But Jesus isn't hiding. He's not a coward. He knows exactly what is going to happen, how it's going to happen, why it's going to happen. And he goes to the garden. I often wonder, was he thinking of 2 Samuel 15, where, remember, Absalom was fighting against David, and David had a friend named Ahithophel, and Ahithophel was one of David's best friends, and then Ahithophel turns and betrays David and starts working for Absalom, and David has to run away. And it says in 2 Samuel 15 that David ran across fled, across the Kidron Valley, across the, the brook Kidron, into the garden, and over the Mount of Olives. He fled. And I wonder if Jesus, in the garden that David would have fled through to get away, I wonder if Jesus is wondering, can I flee? I can just run over the Mount of Olives and hide. Judas won't know where I am. But Jesus stays there. He stays because he knows this is what has to happen. He's making it happen. Verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So we have a Roman cohort, which is between 200 to 600 men, and they're Roman officials, they're Roman officers, they're Roman soldiers. We have officers from the chief priests, the chief priests are the Sadducees, and we have the Pharisees. So we have the Romans, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, all of whom hate each other. They despise each other. But they hate Jesus even more, so they're going to go after him together. Why so many men? Um, if you've ever seen a movie about the, the Passion of the Christ, for instance, something that shows the Garden of Gethsemane, usually it's you know, 10 to 12 soldiers. It's not what the Bible says was happening. The Bible says that it was a large amount of people, between 200 to 600 men. And they have, end of verse 3, lanterns, torches, and weapons. Why are they doing that? Why are they coming out with such a huge number? Because they know the power that Jesus has. They know his power, so they think we're going to have to take him by force. And they have torches. They have lanterns. This is very strange because Passover always falls on a full moon. They would have enough light to be able to see what's happening. They're expecting a, a, an escape, a, a fleeing of Jesus and his disciples. They're going to expect a chase here, and they're going to have to hunt him down. So as they show up into the garden, they're thinking, we have to subdue Jesus. We have to fight to take him captive. He's going to run. They're expecting a fight and a search. But verse 4, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Jesus went to them. They come to take him thinking this is going to be a fight, and then they're going to flee. And he's the one who steps forth and initiates this dialogue. He initiates the questioning. This is not a victim. This is not a coward. This is not a martyr. This is the glory of our Savior on display as he steps forward and says, Who do you seek? I'm asking the questions here. Verse 5, they answer, Jesus the Nazarene. 
And he said to them, my Bible says I am he, he is in italics, that means it's not in the original language, and it isn't in the original language. In the original language, it is I am. I am. Why is that important? Because that's the personal name of God. I am. We've seen these I am statements, the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the true vine, I am all these different things that we've seen here, they culminate in Jesus saying before Roman soldiers and before Jewish uh, soldiers as well, I am. Judas is also standing there, verse 5. He's betraying Jesus. He's standing there. Not embarrassed, no shame. His sin has just eaten him alive. And as Jesus speaks the words, I am, verse 6, they all drew back and fell to the ground. This is not, you know, a scene from like Monty Python or something where somebody slips and as they fall, there's a line of soldiers and they all just domino down. This is utter fear in the presence of someone they know has power. The Romans are probably drawing back because they think there's going to be a fight, and we've heard about this man's power. The Jewish officers are probably drawing back because they hear a name that they won't even take to their own lips because they know this is the name of God, and Jesus has just said he is God. He says, I am. And so they all draw back. They all fall down. Why? Because this is God's personal name. I am this is a very strange statement. For example, if I said, hello, everyone. Welcome to Christ Bible Church. I am. Uh, you are what? Happy to see me? Uh, Patrick Carmichael? I am Patrick Carmichael, and I am happy to see you. I am. I am without a predicate makes no sense. I am. You are what? In our world, in everyday common language together, you have to have a predicate to make that make sense. But here's the point. God needs no predicate. God needs no I am something. He just is. He always has been. He is sovereignly self-sufficient. And so he says, I am. And as he says those words, those that are there in the garden to arrest Jesus are arrested by Jesus with just two words. I am. He's not trapped. Jesus is not tricked in the garden. He is triumphant in the garden. And Judas is a traitor in the garden. Judas was the treasurer. Now he's a traitor. He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, just about 20 bucks. He traded everything for 20 bucks. Everything. He's a reminder that apostasy is real. None of us is beyond it. And so he's standing right there with Jesus. It's very interesting to know. There's something that John leaves out. You know it. We don't see Judas going up to Jesus, kissing Jesus. I wonder if John, knowing that that was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we already have a record of that. Maybe he is so despairing over what Judas did that he can't even bring himself to write those words that the Son of Man was betrayed with a kiss. Many people think that Judas was hired by the religious leaders to identify Jesus. That's not what he was hired to do. Um, 
many people think that because of the kiss. Here, I'll let you know who he is. There's 12 Jewish men. You don't know who Jesus is. I'll let you know. No, he wasn't hired to identify the kiss. I believe what, Jesus, what Judas is trying to do with the kiss, and, and we read in the Gospels that it's not just one kiss, it's multiple kisses with a hug. I think what he's saying is, as I go to kiss him and to hug him, I'm, I'm saying, I'm back, Master. I'm back, Rabbi. It's good to see you. I hope you had a good rest of your Passover supper together. I'm back. And, and he hugs him, and maybe he holds on to him, expecting the Romans to come around him and, and grab him and arrest him. I'm going to keep him from running away. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for, for kiss is the exact same word for weapon with just one letter added to it. He uses a kiss as a weapon. He wasn't hired to identify Jesus. Everyone knew who Jesus was. He was hired by the religious leaders to find a time that he would be alone and a place in which he would be alone. That's what Mark explicitly tells us in Mark 14, end of 13 into 14. The religious leaders said, we we want to kill this man, but the crowds are on his side, and so we can't do anything for fear of the crowds, so we have to find a time that he'll be alone, away from the crowds. No better time than Passover to do that. So Jesus says, I am, and Judas is standing right there, unflinching, unembarrassed, no shame, doesn't run away. We see sin on full display. His authority is on display. The mission is right on plan. The mission to provide substitutionary atonement is right on plan. No human mission will turn back God's mission. No human mission can deter God's mission to save sinners, including the sin of trying to stop God from accomplishing his mission. No mission, no human earthly mission can stop God from accomplishing his mission. So the implication for us is if Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him and he planned it and he purposed it and he wasn't a victim, then he knows everything that's going to happen to you. He's planned it. He's purposed it. You're not a victim. He is working in your life for your good and for his glory. We see the glory of Jesus's authority on display and he's working for your good in the exact same way that he was working for your good in the garden. We also see his protection. This is verses 7 through 9. We see his authority in verses 1 through 6. We see his protection on display. Verse 7, Therefore he again asked them, they're all on the ground, and he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And so he answers and says, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, then let these, let these disciples go their way. And he said this, verse 9, John tells us, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I lost not one. Go back to 17, verse 12. Jesus prayed, while I was with them, Father, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of them perished. I kept them, I am keeping them, and you are keeping them. Back in John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. So, in the garden, Jesus meets the soldiers, and he initiates the conversation, and he says, Tell me your orders. I want to hear your orders. And then, once he hears the orders, the warrant is for Jesus the Nazarene. 
He says, that's me. And then he tells the soldiers what to do. He tells them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, in the Greek, let these go, that's an imperative. That's a command. He's commanding soldiers. This isn't a coward. Cowards and victims don't command. They beg for their lives. Jesus isn't begging for his life. He's telling his arresting officers, you do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. He owns them. We see his authority, and now as he owns these people, he's going to protect his own. He's going to protect his own. While they are about to tie his hands, verse 12, the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested him and bound him. While they're about to tie him up, he's tying their hands. You can't do anything that I'm not allowing you to do. And he does it to fulfill what he had prayed and what he had said. I will not lose one of my disciples. Now this is just massive. What kind of faith did the disciples have at this moment? What kind of faith? It's very weak. And apparently, it's the kind of faith that would never have lasted arrest, torture, and even death at this moment. Because hypothetically, the hypothetical here is Jesus is saying, if I don't let them go, if they don't leave, if you take them right now, they're going to lose their faith. If you take them right now, they're going to lose their faith, and I won't protect them. I can't protect them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken us, but what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not be, allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but in the, te- in the testing, in the trial, he'll give you a way of escape. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, tested, tried, beyond what you're able to live through. So I want to say this very clearly. I think, I think we can say this biblically. If your faith is too weak and the test is too strong, you can lose your salvation. If your faith is too weak and the test is too strong, you can lose your salvation. So Jesus steps in to make sure none of those things ever happen. If your faith is too weak and the test is too strong, you can lose your salvation. So God will never allow that to happen. He steps in and says, I'm not allowing you to be in a place where you'll be tested beyond what you're able. I'm not going to give you a test that's too strong. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to protect you. Let my disciples go. Because if you pick them up at this moment, their faith isn't strong enough. And the test will be too strong. You say, wait, don't you believe once saved, always saved? Uh, Yes, I do. I believe that's biblical. I believe we've gone through that. In the high priestly prayer, in John 10 and John 6, I believe we're seeing that on display right here. I think that a better way to save it, say it is once you are authentically saved, you'll stay saved. I don't think it's once prayed, always saved. I don't think it's, I made a choice and now I'm, I think once you are authentically saved, a salvation that is authentically possessed is a salvation that can never, ever be lost. It can never be lost. Once saved, you will stay saved, but not because you managed to keep yourself saved, but because Jesus protects you. Jesus will either keep us from the trial entirely, which is what he's doing to his disciples right now. 
Jesus knows if they go through this trial, if they're arrested, they get tortured, they get thrown into prison, and they get executed. If this happens to them right now, they will lose their faith. So I'm not letting them go through it. Look at Peter. He's going to go through it, right? He's going to go through it at the end of his life. He's going to be crucified upside down. And he's going to keep his faith because God's going to keep him. Because God knows at this point, your faith is at a place where this test, you can pass. He's never going to let us go through a test that we cannot pass through his strength. So he will either keep us from the trial, because if the test is too strong, we can lose our salvation. So he'll either keep us from the trial, or he's going to give us grace inside the trial, in the moment of the trial, to keep the faith through the trial. You ever had that, that thought You see somebody going through something on Facebook or even something in our church and it's a massive test and you're wondering, I don't know how I could go through that. I don't know how I could ever live through that. If I was in that moment, I don't know how I would survive. That question is exactly what Jesus is saying right here. That question is saying, I don't have the grace right now to be able to go through that. Of course you don't because you're not in that trial. But when you get into that trial, God's going to give you the grace in that trial. He's either going to keep you from that trial because your faith isn't strong enough or he's going to give you grace in the trial to sustain you through that trial. Corey Ten Boom, an amazing picture of sustaining grace in the midst of a trial. She asked her father, what are we going to do? What are we going to say if a soldier comes to our door and, and takes us and throws us into the the cars, the, the train, what, what are we going to do? And her dad said, I don't know, but I know this. You don't use a ticket until you transfer it to the conductor to get onto a train. God will give you the ticket when it's time for you to ride on the train of suffering. You don't have the ticket yet, Corey, but don't worry, God will give you the ticket of grace when you're in that trial. And we know that he did. We know that he did. Jesus will prevent the possibility of us ever sinning ourselves into eternal condemnation. What what shall separate us? Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, once saved, authentically saved, truly saved, you will stay saved. Because... If, you, if your faith was weak enough or if your test was strong enough, you would lose your salvation. So God will keep you from a, a testing that's too strong or from a faith that's too weak. He will sustain you. He will protect you just as he does with his disciples in these verses. You cannot be lost. If you are a believer, you cannot be lost because John 17, Jesus is praying you into heaven. And John 18, he's protecting you into heaven. You can't be lost. So we see his authority on display. We see his glory, Jesus' glory in his authority. We see Jesus' glory in his protection. And finally, we see Jesus' glory in his obedience. This is verses 10 through 11. Simon Peter, first words in verse 10. (laughs) Simon Peter, we're so much like this man. Jesus says, I'll protect you. He steps forward, 600 guards, and he says, who do you seek? I am. Take me. Don't take any of them. Let them go. I'm protecting them. And Peter goes, thanks, Jesus. I got this one. And steps in front of Jesus. 
I'll protect you, Jesus. Thanks for the offer of protection, but I'll protect you. Draws his sword. Cuts off Malchus's ear. That's not what he was trying to do. Wasn't like, man, I want to make this man miserable. Let's just, let's just slice an ear off. No, you can see exactly what he's doing. Pulls out a sword. I want to cut his head off. And as he goes to cut Malchus's head off, Malchus ducks, and he chops off his ear. Suffice it to say, Peter's a better fisherman than a fighter. <laughs> but you can, you can see this moment. You can almost hear the clanking of swords as, as it, it's pulled out of its sheath. You can, you can hear the scream from Malchus as his, his ear is cut off. And he falls to the ground. You can hear the blood hitting the ground. You can hear Jesus cry out in Luke 22, verse 51. No more of this. Stop this. This is not how it's going to go. You can see a scared Malchus. By the way, we know Malchus's name only from John 18. Um, most... Uh, Bible scholars would say that John's father sold fish in the city and specifically in the temple with the high priest, so he probably knew a lot of these guards. That's why John's going to be given access into the temple, into the courtyard when all of these trials are going uh, about. So Malchus, we're told his name because John is able to tell us he's the high priest slave and I know him personally. His name is Malchus. Malchus is an enemy of Jesus, not just in this moment. He's an enemy of Jesus religiously. Malchus thinks you can be saved by doing good works. And, according to Josephus, if Malchus had been missing an ear, he wouldn't have died. We could have made sure he's okay. But if he had gone back to the temple, been okay, lived, but had no ear, he would be marred in such a way that he would not be allowed back into temple service. So if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, you know what, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. But uh, he's not going to die, and now we just plucked one out from this religious system. This is great. Let's just leave it. What a great opportunity to destroy the high priest's servants and maybe just, just take one peg out of the huge board of Pharisaism. But what does Jesus do? Jesus bends over. Whether he picks up the ear or whether he just puts his hand on Malchus's ear. I, I'd prefer that one. It's not like he needs the ear. Just, well, that's fine. We don't need that. I'll make a brand new one. And he heals Malchus. We see the glory of Jesus on display in the last miracle that Jesus is going to do before he's nailed to a cross. Peter thinks, you know what? I can defend you. I can protect you. Jesus says, no, I'll do the protecting. No more of this. And then he turns to, G, to, to Peter, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, and he says, Peter, do you not know that if the Father wanted me to get out of this, he would send more than 12 legions of angels to come and get me? A legion is 6,000 troops. Not a math guy, but I think 6 times 12 legions of angels is 72,000. Michelle will check my math. And Jesus says, more than that. I, I can call down more than 72,000 angels at my disposal in an instant to do this job. Peter, thanks, but 
If I wanted it to be done this way, I would have called my father and had him bring these angels down. Jesus had a million reasons to turn away. A million reasons. And it would have been so easy. It would have been so easy for Jesus to make Good Friday never happen. So easy. Just don't go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Hide somewhere else. But he stays in the garden. He had a million reasons to turn away. He had one reason to stay. And that one reason was enough for Jesus. The glory of the Father and the obedience of the Son in purchasing sinners like you and me. That reason alone kept Jesus in the garden. His obedience, the glory of Jesus on display in his obedience, he stays in the garden. This reminds me of another garden, the first garden, the garden where God would step in like he normally does to talk with Adam and to Eve, but this time instead of finding Adam, Adam has hid himself. Adam is hiding because he's ashamed of his sin. Remember how Genesis opens. In the beginning. How does John open? In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John has been writing this whole time to show us that the glory of Jesus is the glory of the second Adam who's going to undo everything the first Adam did. Here in this garden, we see the God-Adam confrontation once again, but the roles are completely reversed. In the Garden of Eden, God, the Holy One, comes looking for Adam, the sinner, and Adam hides, and for good reason, because of his shameful guilt. In the Garden of Gethsemane, sinful people are coming into the garden looking for someone, but that someone does not hide because he has no reason to hide. And while the descendants of the first Adam march into the darkness with torches and lanterns, the second Adam shines as the light of the world in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower him. In Eden, Adam sins. In Gethsemane, Christ obeys. In Eden, Adam falls. In Gethsemane, Christ conquers. In Eden, in Eden, Adam hides. In Gethsemane, Christ is the one who steps forward. In Eden, the sword is drawn to say, no more access here. And in Gethsemane, the sword is sheathed to say, I'm going to make access for them. Here, glory is supremely displayed in places where it seems most impossible. What about you? Are you in a situation where it seems like there's no way glory can come out of this? There's no way. This is an impossible situation. This is hopeless for God to do anything good in this situation. Brothers and sisters, listen to Jesus hear from him, see his example, and know that glory shines most brightly in the moments that seem most desperate and most impossible. Why? Verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? What is the cup? This is the cup that Jesus had prayed, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass me by. Mark 14, let me give you just a couple of verses. You can write these down. Psalm 75, verse 8. A cup 
is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink it down to its dregs. God has a cup. What is the cup? Isaiah 51, verse 17. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling, you have drained it to the dregs. What is the cup? And what is in the cup? Whatever's in the cup made Jesus unable to stand in the garden. Whatever's in the cup made Jesus tremble. He said to the disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I could die right now because I'm so distressed. Why? What was he distressed about? What is he concerned about? So many people would say he is staring at the cross. He's looking at the cross. And yes, he is, but many people terminate on the physical aspect of the cross. He's staring at being crucified, nails in his hands, nails in his feet, crown of thorns on his head, um, a a bruised back ripped open by the whips and the, the beatings. I personally believe that Jesus wasn't thinking of any of those things. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if Jesus is concerned about his physical death, he's a wimp and we shouldn't follow him because his followers do a better job in their deaths. Peter goes to his death. He's going to be crucified upside down, Josephus tells us. He's going to be crucified upside down, and he went to his death singing songs of thanksgiving. His wife and his kids were crying. He hugged them. He said, don't cry for me. You'll see me soon enough. Enjoy what God's going to allow you to do through this glorious moment. So if Jesus' followers do a better job going to their death than he did, he's not worthy of being followed. The followers are worthy of being followed. I don't think that Jesus is concerned about the physical aspect of the cross at all. Not to minimize the physical aspect of the cross, it's horrific. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Not to minimize the physical aspect of the cross, but to maximize what Jesus was truly terrified of. He was terrified of his father's wrath. The physical aspect of the cross is an easy thing for Jesus to deal with. The wrath of God against sinners like you and me, that's what levels our Savior on the ground. That's what made him cry out three times, there's got to be another way. Just a few days prior on Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus had, had called out to the Father, Should I ask at this moment for you to take the cup away? No, it's for this reason that I came. I'm going to the cross. And his father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. He is my son. I'm pleased by him. On Tuesday, he said, I would never even contemplate asking the question for you to take the cup away. I've never even contemplated doing that. And on Thursday night, Friday morning, he's contemplating, is there another way? He's asking the question. He said, I'm not even going to ask that question. It's not sinful because he ultimately submits his will to the Father. As he stares into the cup, deep into the darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, is there another way? 
He's going to experience in three hours on the cross. He's on the cross for six hours, but three hours of those six hours is complete darkness. Most theologians would say that's when God's wrath was being poured out. Three hours. He's going to experience an infinite amount of punishment in the span of three hours. That's what he's contemplating in the garden. That's what's in the cup. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he looks into the cup of God's wrath. He sees what he's about to go through. And he says, Father, please, is there any other way? And you know that if there was another way, the Father would have rushed in and said, there's another way. But as he cries out, Father, is there another way? He hears only silence. And he cries out, not my will, but yours be done. Why does he say that? This is where we see the glory of Jesus in his obedience. Jesus knows the cup is going to be poured out. No one can stop the cup from being poured out. The question is, who's going to drink it? Jesus is going to drink it on behalf of those who are going to turn and follow him. Turn from the sins that he's dying to free them from and follow him. And so I plead with you today, there is a cup of God's wrath against sin. And this does not make him mean. This does not make him unjust. We have done what is wrong, what is unlawful. And just as we would, if we do something unlawful uh, in the, the laws of our land, we would be sent to jail. There is a punishment for crime. But the crimes we are talking about are not crimes against human forms of government. We are talking about crimes against the infinitely holy God of the universe. We've sinned against him. The wages of our sin is death. Everyone has sinned. We all know that. And the wages of our sin is death. The wages of our sin is drinking from that cup, and it will be poured out. And if you don't know today that Jesus has drunk from that cup in its entirety. It's been turned over. It's been put down on the table. There's not a drop left to drink. If you don't know that Jesus has done that for you in your place, if you don't know with assurance and confidence that Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath for you in your place today, and that if you were to die, you would be seen as perfectly holy and righteous before the Father with no punishment left to pay because he took it all for you. If you don't know that with confidence today, please don't leave this place until you talk with one of us. Come talk to me. You need to know with confident assurance, Jesus' drinking of that cup has been done on my behalf, so I don't have anything left to fear. I have no judgment. I have no punishment. I have no anger. I have no wrath left in store. Now death will be gain. I'm not afraid of dying because the sting of death is sin and sin has been taken away because my punishment's been taken away and I am free. And if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. If you don't know that freedom and that joy, today is the day of salvation. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ who drank the cup, the bitter cup that you deserve. Father, we pray that as we have seen the glory of our Savior on display and his authority in the garden, they are coming to arrest him, 600 men who are going to give him orders, and he's the one who steps out and gives them orders. They want to come and take his disciples captive, and he says, no one can touch my sheep. 
And God, we worship our Savior who says that about us today. You say over us, you are all authoritative, you are sovereign over everything that we are going through, and you protect us in everything we are going through because you allow us to go through what we're going through. You will not allow us to go through something that would take our faith and make a shipwreck of it. You are all authoritative and you are all powerful in your protection over us. We have peace because you've overcome the world. And specifically, Father, we stare at the glory seen in the obedience of your son who turns to Peter and says, I have a job to do. Peter, I've already fought this fight. I wrestled in the the garden with my father and I submitted myself to his will. Peter, put your sword away. I need to die for you. I need to drink the cup for you. Father, as we stare at your son's perfect obedience in life's most difficult, seemingly impossible moments, may we see glory and may it change us from one degree of glory to the next. God, as we sing, we sing as those who have no bitter cup reserved for them any longer. Wrath is exhausted. Anger has been satisfied, and we have nothing but joy, peace, the pleasure of you, our Heavenly Father, to enjoy. You're never angry with us because you poured out the penalty we so richly deserve upon your Son. So Jesus, we say, thank you. You didn't have to do this. You did it because of your love for us, your love for the Father, So we say thank you. And God, for those in this room that don't know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation as they see the beauty of Jesus and the glory that he has displayed in his obedience. He took their penalty. May today be the day that we trust in him alone. We love you, Jesus. There's nothing left for us to do. We don't work to earn your favor. You did the work so that your Father would be pleased. It is finished. So we come before you now not saying, we're going to work to earn your favor. We're going to do things to make you happy. No, we come before you and we say, you paid it all. And we say thank you. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen.